Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. Now, once you get that painting going, it's, oh, it's exciting. It's wonderful. Can't wait. Ooh, it's great. The first couple of days are really good and then you hate it. You just hate it. And that's when it becomes work and you have to stop and say, why is this not working? Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, episode six. I'm your host, Kellyanne Powers, and this week we're talking with watercolorist Anne Abgott. In this episode, you'll learn how Abgott keeps shadows, backgrounds, and yes, even neutrals dynamic. She tells you exactly the colors she uses, and you'll hear tips on how to create great color combos for your own work. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode six to sign up for the newsletter and get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. While you're there, check out the bonus audio we have from the interview, where Anne explains how you can create your own opaque watercolors. Okay, so before we jump in, let's talk about how Abgot mixes color, because it might surprise you. When you think about an artist mixing color, you're probably picturing them doing it on their palette. So if someone wants to make green, they take yellow and they put it on their palette and they take blue and they put it on their palette and they mix the two on their palette and that makes green, which they then bring over to their paper. However, some artists like Abgot and Peggy Habits, episode four, mix on their paper. And there are several ways you can do this. Abgot mingles. And you'll hear us using that term a lot, mingling. So here's what she does. She takes a brush load of yellow, wet pigment yellow, and lay it down on her paper next to a brush load of wet blue. And she'll touch the edges of those two pigments, yellow and blue. And where they touch, because they're wet, they start pushing into each other. They start to mix, they mingle, and create green. So when you hear us talk about mingling, that's what's happening. She's mixing color on her paper, and the results are dynamic passages of color with movement and life. All right, let's get started. Hi, Anne. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being with us today. Happy to be here. How did you discover watercolor? I was in Florida. My husband at the time would vacation periodically. He was supposed to be retired, but I got terribly bored with just doing nothing. And I'd always been interested in art. I painted in oil when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. And a neighbor said to me, would you like to take a watercolor class? I went with her and took a watercolor class. She quit and I just became obsessed. How is your watercolor a reflection of your painting in oil or a response to your painting in oil? In a couple of ways. I didn't have the patience for glazing. I like to slap the paint on the paper. I like to let it happen on the paper. And I couldn't get the darks that I wanted. And so I just started charging the paint into the paper. 
the 300 pound paper and getting the effects that I wanted. And I think that's the result of painting in oils. You get that immediate color and you don't want to glaze and glaze and glaze to get a dark, to get a value 910. How did you go about teaching yourself to paint watercolor? I painted all the time. I painted every day. I carved out time. I would look at a week. My husband was alive at the time and I would look at the week and say, okay, we don't have any plans on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. So I would Monday and Thursday, I would do the hairdresser and the lunch with the girls and the dentist. So those days, I didn't have to go out of the house. I started at nine in the morning and I painted until cocktail time at five. To this day, that's the way I work. Being a beginner can be really tough because there's this time between what you can do physically and what you want to be able to do. How did you overcome that frustrating part of being a beginner? If you could look at the piles of old paintings that I have, in many of them, there were good parts and bad parts. I tore up very few because I think, to answer your question, the frustration is because you don't have the knowledge yet. And that knowledge does come with time. So I can take a painting that I did 10, 15 years ago and look at it and say, oh my God, this is just awful. In fact, I do, when I teach workshops, I do what I call a little dog and pony show. And I pull out the old paintings and show them the before and the after. And it's all because I didn't have the knowledge that I had 5, 10, 15 years later. A perfect example of that is I always felt that florals needed the sky in the background. Well, I had some of the worst looking backgrounds in florals that you've ever seen, but I didn't throw them away and I didn't rip them up. And I had a couple of really, the paintings themselves were good. The backgrounds were God awful. So I pulled them out 10, 15 years later, and I, I looked at them with a more artistic eye and a mind that knew more. And I said, okay, what's the predominant color here? Green. It's green leaves. What's the complement to green? It's red. And now knows how to put in dark red backgrounds. So I took those two paintings and I charged in my dark red backgrounds using all my reds and darkening it different places with mineral violet to get value changes. And both those paintings sold the following week in a gallery down in Sarasota. Life is a series of clicks. Art is a series of clicks. Those red backgrounds saved my life. What is the biggest challenge you see your students facing when learning to paint? Learning to paint or learning to paint successful paintings? You're right. Those are two different questions. Let's start with learning to paint, but then let's also make sure we answer that second question of learning to paint successful paintings. I think the learning to paint part, the thing that I see the most of, is a lot of flat objects. To get the volume in a round object, you must push the sides back. You must get the value changes. They get the ones and twos and the eight to tens, but they don't get the three, four, fives, six, sevens. And you have to have that. 
you have to have at least three values to create a sense of volume. The object going from light struck to shadow to dark as it turns away from the light. It can be a vase, it can be a petal on a flower, it can be a leaf. I recommend they take a black and white copy machine and make a black and white copy of it. That will show you the value changes. Now, in the olden days, we all did value sketches, and those still come in handy. But that's the key in creating something that feels both not flat, but also has a sense of realism to it. Yes, and you could reach out and touch it. Well, then to follow up with the other question, what is the biggest challenge you see students to painting successful paintings? Oh, that's the hardest part. You know, after you learn the techniques, now you get into design and composition and successful paintings and learning to know what's going to work and not work. I do a lab that I ask them to bring their ideas for paintings, photographs they want to paint, drawings, and they get blown out of the water by what they like that won't work as a painting. And nobody takes a perfect picture. There's always something wrong. So you need to know how to correct those. Most of the time, it's going to involve taking out a lot of detail, simplifying. And you've got to have the big shapes, middle-sized shapes, and little shapes. Papa, mama, baby. There's a big difference between learning to paint and painting successful paintings. I've got one right here in the house right now that I just love. Do I think it's a successful painting yet? No. But basically simplifying and sticking with the Papa, Mama, Baby is going to be the best thing you can think about. Could you talk to me more about the Papa, Mama, Baby shapes? So, for example, when you're working on, say, a thumbnail, your compositional thumbnail, mm -hmm. is there a certain number of like one big papa and then two mama and then multiple babies? Just as you said, that's a good rule of thumb. I would take it from that to just looking at it. And if it looks right to me, I go with it. I remember years ago saying to Mark Mahaffey, I know nothing about composition. And he said, yes, you do. He said, you do, but you don't know it. You also have to trust yourself. You're going to make mistakes. But there's nothing wrong with making mistakes. And there is no hard, fast rule. One papa, two babies, three mamas. Just keep working with it till it looks right to you. I always recommend to people who are looking to improve to look at catalogs and magazines. And you're going to see the rules broken time and time again. You're going to see the award winner in a show that doesn't follow the criteria of what you've been taught. So it becomes very confusing and you have to learn to trust yourself. Could you walk me through your painting process? I work from photographs. I spend hours going through photographs and looking for things. I'm always taking pictures. I keep hundreds, thousands of photographs. I selectively weed out some and put them in a pile. That pile is the pile I've always wanted to paint. That's the beginning of it. And then I go through the photographs. So in front of the TV at night, I'll go through the images. And one of them's going to jump out at me. 
And then I take a look at it and I say, okay, let's think past the photograph. Do I need to paint everything that's here? Are there Papa Mama babies? Are there neutrals? Are there bright colors? Does Anne love this photograph and can't wait to paint it? And then I check what I've got in the way of mats and frames. Then I cut the paper to fit the mat and the frame that it's going to go into. This saves a lot of time. And then I get the image on the paper. I print out the photograph and a black and white copy. And then I start to paint. Now, once you get that painting going, it's, oh, it's exciting. It's wonderful. Can't wait. Woo, it's great. The first couple of days are really good. And then you hate it. You just hate it. And that's when it becomes work. And you have to stop and say, why is this not working? That's when what you've learned, what you've read, what your friends have told you, you have to start asking those questions of yourself. So I look for repetition of color, repetition of shape, triangles of color. It's all, all part and parcel of it. Then where do you do your planning? I take the photograph a lot of times and do thumbnails. I slip the photograph underneath tracing paper. And I don't do a lot of detail. I outline the shapes. And then I decide where I'm going to crop. If the shapes show me the Papa, Mama, Baby and the design elements that I like, then I will put the edges around the shape, the, where the edge of the paper is going to be. And then I go from that. How do you develop the painting? First thing I do is I establish the whites of my paper. Where am I going to leave the whites in my paper? Sometimes I put in all my darkest values. Another time I put in all my middle values. It just depends on the painting. I tried painting Chris Kropinski's way one inch at a time from the top left corner. That lasted about an hour. So it's just the way I paint. And I'm not comfortable just having one painting on the go. I have two or three. I tend to get myself into messes every once in a while, painting wet on wet into wet. So if I've got three paintings on the go, all different subjects, I will paint for a couple of days on one and then set that aside and go to something else. That's my process. There is no tried and true way. I think it's whatever works for you. Thing I, I think I am told over and over again that students don't realize how wet I work. I use a lot more water than they think I do. And this is the big thing with me. I very, very seldom make puddles on my palette. I work directly out of the well. I'm going to say 98% of the time. And when I'm teaching, I stress that. Because if you take the paint out of the well, if you take the brown matter by Hobine, and you take the indigo right out of the well onto the paper, you're going to get a value 10 with life in it, warms and cools. Because you don't do glazing, how do you mingle colors physically on the paper? Do you want me to do a shadow or do you want me to talk about? Yeah, let's do a shadow. Let's do a shadow. Okay, I would start with verditer blue out of a juicy puddle. I would start at the far corner or one area of the shadow. And I would do two or three strokes of that. And then I would clean my brush off. And then I would pick up the permanent rose. I would join that while it's wet to the verditer blue. Now, because they're wet, they're moving together. There's always going to be the movement. 
and then I would try a little bit of sap green, but I'm always joining them. I don't drop in because I don't want my, let's just say the vertiger blue part, I don't want that to be contaminated and changed. I want that to work with the permanent rose or the mineral violet or any of the other colors I might drop and create passages of color that when they dry are going to look neutral but with life in them. I join. And then you do all of your characteristics control in that. So if you want to create a duller passage, you would mix complements. And if you wanted yes. to create... Okay. Yes. If I've got a red flower and parts of that red flower are duller than others, I will take and put a little bit of green in the red. I won't necessarily just use darker reds. There are always duller. I use that adding the complement to the color to dull it down all the time. This also makes me realize, it. I think this speaks to your deep understanding of color, because if you're working, if you're mingling colors, so wet into wet, you need to already know that cooler colors recede and warmer colors come forward and darker yes. colors recede. That, yes. Because you're playing with all of that mm -hmm. live in the mm -hmm. moment. Right, right, yes. And I stress that when I teach, you know, it's the warm colors are going to come forward and darker colors are going to recede. So use that when you're painting the flower. When you're looking at a section and you're about to paint it, what do you think through and need to know about that section before you start going in? I have to know the value and I rely heavily on a value sketch and a black and white. If you take a white lily and put it in a black and white copy machine and darken it down a couple of notches, you will see that that white lily, and this is where we can go back to the beginning artist not seeing the values, giving it volume, making it turn away from the light, come forward to the light. It's always the change in values. Whites are never pure white. You're going to have warm shadows on the white flower. You're going to have reflective colors in the shadows of the white flower. The leaves surrounding the flower are going to have some effect in that shadow. They're going to reflect a little bit of green in there. So drop a little bit of green into your shadow. That's my big bugaboo is, is shadows that are Payne's gray. Well, let's talk about shadows. What different types of shadows are there? When someone is looking oh. at something, what should they be thinking through in terms of the type of shadows? Well, the first thing that I see is soft and hard. Hard edge shadows are made by cast objects. Soft shadows are form shadows. In other words, the petal, as it moves towards you, and away from you, or there's a little crease in it, those shadows are going to be soft-edged. And your black and white will show you that. What happens in shadows from a color standpoint? It's not just gray. No, I think a shadow should reflect the color of the surface it's lying on and the object that is casting the shadow. You have to reflect that color into the shadow. If I'm painting the shadow, 
under a green pepper. I'm going to use my basic colors, which is Vertiter Blue by Hobine, which is different blue than any other Vertiter on the market. And it is my replacement for Cerulean because it doesn't have as much white in it. So I get a transparent from it. So Vertiter Blue, and then I will mingle in a little sap green, repeating the color of the pepper. I will add a little bit of permanent rose, and then I might add some cobalt blue. I might add a little bit, let's just say there's a light warm cast to this one side of the pepper. I will throw in a yellow. You can throw in a yellow into a shadow without it turning everything green and without it taking over all the other colors. If you do it at the very last, and if you use Horridum Schmecki Yellow Ochre. I paint a lot of white pelicans, and white pelicans like white flowers and white shirts and pants. The shadows are reflecting colors, color of the skin, anything around it. But to give the feeling of the light, I will often throw a little bit of Horridum Schmecki Yellow Ochre into the shadow at the very last minute. It pushes a little bit, but it gives it that warmth. How do you make choices about color going in? Do you go in with oh. a color scheme or what's your oh. thinking there? Oh, I did the best thing. I got to tell you this. For years, I used to pull out of magazines in the hairdressers and the doctor's offices. I would come across an ad and it would have all these great colors together that I would have never dreamt of putting together. And I had piles of them. So last summer, I went through this pile of magazine articles and I pulled them all out, cut them into little pieces and glued them into a book. And then, and one of the ones I did because I love his work is Stephen Quiller. And I would take a piece of Stephen Quiller because he uses color oh, and oddball colors that work beautifully compost green with transparent orange. Oh my God, just gorgeous. Anyway, I made the book and then I had the color chart I'd cut out of the magazine on one piece of paper. And on the other side, I matched those colors from my palette. I used that the other day. I had a picture I wanted to paint of two boats and there was no color in the boats. They were white and ugly. So I went to my book and I found the color combinations I wanted to use. And I painted those. There were peaches and orange and blues, turquoises, a red violet, and I needed the water. Well, I figured out right away it couldn't be a warm green. It needed to be a cool green because it was in my book. So I used that. The other person who I think does wonderful things with color is Karen Knudsen. I was very flattered Karen Knudsen came to one of my workshops. In fact, she stayed with me uh, last year. I love the way she uses color. So I've got little cheat sheets of hers too in my book. So that's where I go because there's all kinds of gimmicks now. You know, you can go to Photoshop and I do it quite often and enhance a photo and the machine will repeat colors for you. But often there'll be something in there that you, you don't like, just doesn't work. Go to your book, go to your cheat sheet. The other thing is to take oddball colors and make color wheels. 
don't just do red, blue, and yellow. Do manganese blue. Use quinacridone gold. Use brown matter. You won't believe what you'll get. A different red that's outside the box, a different blue, a different yellow. So often that'll help as well. Sounds like you use the reference photo is something that first you're inspired by, yep. and starts the journey, but then it sounds like it turns into a tool for shapes and values. Exactly. And you may use it for color. You may base something on local color if that inspires you, mm-hmm. or do you always do a completely different color scheme? No, I rarely do a completely different color scheme. If I don't like the colors, then I will go to my book. If I get halfway through a painting, like I had a painting, um, it's going to be in Florida watercolor this coming month. I can't, I almost ripped it up because it wasn't working. It, I had no idea what was wrong with it. I was going to cut it in half. That's what I was going to do. And all of a sudden, a light went on and it said to me, all your blues and turquoises are at the bottom. They're nothing at the top because I was a slave to that photograph. So I took myself to Lowe's and Home Depot paint department. And I grabbed all the paint samples off the wall and I came home and I cut up those little colors, the turquoise, and I put it up there and I took the blue and put it there. And all of a sudden the painting came together. So when you think it's not working, there's always a reason you got to sit back. You got to take a while, possibly sit on it for a couple of weeks. I mean, This was basically something that I learned when I started painting. And I had totally forgotten that I could change. In those days, I used to rip the colors out of magazines and place them around. Now I just use the paint chips. So it's a process. And I know not everything works. It's really work. Really, really work. What's the biggest challenge you see people who want to paint well dealing with with color? First of all, they're using student-grade paints that have a lot of of white in them that makes the paint opaque rather than transparent. And it's expensive to go into any art anymore, but watercolor in particular, a tube of paint can cost you anywhere from $18 to $20. But starting with good paper and paint by manufacturers that go on sale, a lot of the manufacturers' paints don't go on sale. And knowing the pigments, knowing your pigments. Like one of my favorite colors is peach. And I make the peach with Naples yellow. And every manufacturer out in the world today makes a Naples yellow. They're all a different color. It happens over and over and over. Could you talk about what are the different qualities that a pigment could have? Well, you've got transparent you've got opaque, you've got granular, and there's warms and cools. So you really need to know those as well. Granular colors are ultramarine blue, mineral violet, which is made by Hobine, yellow ochre, burnt umber, viridian, cobalt violet, cerulean blue, which I don't use, but I use verditer blue instead, and manganese blue. So manganese and burnt sienna will make a beautiful cement color. 
I call it homogenizing. I mix them right together. I don't let them mingle. I mix them and make them deadly ugly. So those are the granular colors. So you need to know those. You need to know the granular colors because if you're going to be painting bark, if you're going to be painting sand, cement, bricks, you'd like to use the granular colors. But there are pigments out there that you can add to transparent paint that will make the transparent paints granular. One of them is by Daniel Smith, and it's called hematite. Hematite is a mineral, and he has put it into a tube. You can get hematite, you can get hematite violet, and you can get hematite burnt scarlet, and add those to your transparent paints. Joe Miller, under the, his brand, American Journey, makes a magnetite genuine, which I really like as well. So I've tried the mediums. That's something that comes in a bottle. I don't particularly care for them. But the hematite and the magnetite genuine work very well, making transparent paints granular. And so where this comes in about knowing the qualities of your pigment is when you're wanting to create lifelike texture. So for example, know which colors you will grab to make brick as opposed to know which yeah. colors you want to grab to make a beautiful sunlit, backlit flower. Very Ex different pigments. Yes. So I just recently did a painting of a man sitting on a step in New Orleans and behind him were all these bricks. I used quinacridone gold and quinacridon red orange and some brown matter and I mingled those on a brick and then I took from a puddle of the magnetite genuine I dropped it in there and let it do its magic on the paper it was amazing what happened there is so much to learn about pigments mm -hmm. how did you go about learning the amount of information you know about color well, my big thing was that I got very impatient and I didn't want to glaze. And as I dropped the paints together on the paper, they either worked or they didn't. So it was a long time of trusting that I would learn what they were going to do. They needed to work well with others on my paper. And then I called a halt to experimenting with a lot of new pigments. I had enough and I just said, okay, I think I know enough now. I'll just keep on painting with what I've got. I mean, you can take workshops and you can watch YouTube and you can be reading books all the time. You can get very confused by all this. So you need to call a halt. Say, okay, I'm going to work with what I like and, and see what happens. Why are grays important, especially if you love color? Oh, God, that was a hard one. I had to learn that. <laughs> uh, you need neutrals. You know, if you've got a, a very colorful object, you need some neutrals. And neutrals will make the colors pop. So you need to know how to make some neutrals. I had to learn that the hard way. A judge or a workshop teacher somewhere along the way said to me, well, it's really pretty colors, but where are the neutrals? So you have to think about that. A neutral next to a pure color will make the pure color sing. But I do have a formula that I use, and the basis of the formula, I don't paint a gray. I make a puddle of verditer blue, I make a puddle of burnt sienna, and I make a puddle of brown matter. 
and I take those three colors and I mingle them on the paper and let them make my gray. And the gray that results is a gray with life in it. They neutralize, they dry duller than they look, but I've got my gray. Now I want a darker gray. I make a puddle of a little more intense blue, which is cobalt blue. Put the cobalt puddle of cobalt blue. Now these are pretty juicy puddles, okay? And burnt sienna and brown matter. And I mingle those for a darker gray. So if I'm making my own grays, I'm never homogenizing them. If I want to homogenize it, it'll be ugly and it'll be gray. But I like stuff with life in it. I'm going to move into backgrounds because you've said that backgrounds are really important. Mm -hmm. Where do you see students struggling with backgrounds? Putting too much color in the background. What I tell people to do, if they're painting people's portraits, to take a look at what the masters do, Ted Nuttall, study what other people are doing and put the neutrals in behind. Backgrounds, I just love dark backgrounds. And I find that I can put in a dark background, almost a value 10, with different colors in it. And I have a technique that I do that with. I use a flat angled brush. I start up in the corner and I will take brown matter, for instance, right out of the well, as little water as possible on the flat brush. You're using a flat brush because it won't carry a lot of water for you. Don't use a round because you're going to get too much water. And the more water you got, the lighter it's going to dry. So flat brush, paint right out of the well, just enough fluid for movement and I will do a choppy passage of the brown matter then I clean that flat brush off and I will go I will look at my subject matter and if my subject matter's got a lot of green in it I might go to sap green same thing I join that to the brown matter while it's still damp then I will go to quinacrid on magenta same thing I will work with the flat brush right out of the well a square probably five, six inch square. Now what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to have the colors in the painting show up in the background, in a very dark background and unify the painting. So I've got my four or five inch square or rectangle shape and it's still damp, that's the important part. Now you take your flat angle brush and you go into indigo. And you start back up in the corner and right over top of all the colors you've put down, leaving little specks showing. And this will not do a dark background unless you use the indigo. But I'm trying to get that darkness with the life in it again, repeating the colors of my subject into the background. And then I start over again. I do the next area. I will work the whole painting that way. Now, one of the things I see when people, my students, try to do this, it takes a while to get the knack of it. It dries choppy, and they're not happy. So you need to activate that paint. What activates the paint? The railway that our paint runs on is the water. So take a wider flat brush, dampen it, and drag it over top of everything and it, you've given enough fluid to the choppiness, and it will all disappear. 
works every time. And the other thing I will say that when you do a mingled dark background and it dries too light, you can redo it. Let it go bone dry, start right over up in the corner with the same colors, repaint it, just do it again and you'll be amazed. All is not lost. And then if all else fails, go over the whole thing with Payne's gray. <laughs> But anyway, it's, it really does work. How do you keep your subject matter from feeling cut out in front of something so deep and intense? Intense isn't the right word, but... Oh, and that's so a wonderf wonderful question. The dark shadows in the subject matter, I will run the background right into them. I will incorporate the value of the background into the subject matter. And then I also have a magic brush. If I want to soften, I get everything all painted and there's too many hard edges and I let it go bone dry. And in Florida, that means two or three days because I work on 300 pound paper and it stays wetter longer. And I take a flat bristle brush and dampen it and drag it over the dry paint. It softens everything and makes it all blend together without losing your shapes. You get soft edges that way. You've talked about 300-pound paper. Why is good paper so important? Well, like I touched on at the beginning of this interview, the cheaper the paint, the more difficult it's going to be for you to work on. And you'd be better off with a good piece of paper. I happen to like 300. Now, the reason I like 300 is I paint well on it. There are wonderful artists out there that paint really well on 140. I can't do it. I just can't do it. So find a paper that works for you. That's your comfort level. How does paper affect the style of work that can be done on it? If you're looking for a loosey-goosey watercolorist, investigate the paper that that artist works on. I'm going to tell you nine times out of ten, it's hot press. If you're going to take a watercolor workshop from somebody whose work has a unique look to it, and they tell you to come with a piece of paper that you've never heard of, get it. Because the paper has a lot to do with the looseness of the painting. That's my, it's my experience anyway. Hot press, I can't stand it because I can't get the darks I want, but you certainly can get the loosey-goosiness with it. Paint sits up on top, doesn't go into the paper. How can an artist use failed paintings to get better? What things would you suggest they think through when they're looking at a painting that doesn't feel like it worked? Well, I guess you need to examine all of the rules that I talked about, rules, but, you know, the papa, mama, baby, the color repetition, a color repetition of shape, um, triangles of color, you need to do that. But again, the life click if I have a class and I ask them, how many of you got unfinished paintings? Everybody's hand will go up. Those unfinished paintings are unfinished for a reason. You either didn't know how to fix it. You didn't know what was good. You didn't know what was bad. Sometimes you just need to take that painting and bury it for a few months. I was talking to a girlfriend the other day and I said, where'd you get that from? And she said, it was in the pile that I knew I was sick of at the time, but I would get back to it later. Now, that was Chris Kerpinski told me that. So there you go. You know, everybody's got them. And you can't let it get to you. 
You can't feel so guilty because you didn't finish that painting. Maybe you were meant not to finish the painting. Maybe you need to let it cook and you needed to cook. And you're going to see it in a totally different mindset when you go back to it a year later or a couple of years later. It's just time. I want to switch gears a little bit. So we're kind of going into mindset. How do you create the mental space to paint? Carve out the days of the week that I'm not going to be doing anything. Have a book on tape that I really like. I love to paint alone. Um, I also do paint with friends occasionally, but I like to paint alone. That's my mindset. But the number one thing about that is to have an image that I'm excited about, that I can't wait to get to. I get this feeling in my stomach. I get a little itchy feeling in my stomach that I got to get a brush in my hand. That's a mindset for me. So carving out the time. The other thing is I leave everything out. If you're an artist, if you're a beginning artist and you don't have a little space in your house that you can leave all your, your paints out, you're not going to paint. If you have to pick it up and put it away every time, you're never going to paint enough. If you leave it out, it tells everybody in the house how important it is to you and it calls to you like the laundry. And nobody should ever think it's easy. I think a lot of beginners feel that because you're, you've got some initials after your name or a book or they've seen your name in shows that you have all the answers. We do just as many bad paintings as good paintings. This is a quote by Wendell Berry, the real work. I believe this. I have it posted in my studio. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. I think that's very, very important. Any advice for someone wanting to learn to paint? Who's at the beginning of their journey? Paint every day. If they really, really want to get good. Take workshops or classes, but be very careful who you take from. There are all kinds of ways to paint out there. There's glazing, there's pouring, there's wet on wet. Analyze the paintings that you like and find out what style that is and then go to the teacher that's going to help you with that I mean, you could sign up for a workshop with Jean Grassdorf or Linda Baker, who are pourers, and they're wonderful pourers, but that's not something you will ever use. So you need to be careful who you take from. Maybe you want to take that workshop because you think that element you will use sometime, then take it. But beginning, just paint every day and be careful. You know, I never get depressed. I never get lonely. I never get bored because I've always got my art. And I notice if I'm not maybe feeling as peppy as I think I should, it's always because I'm not painting. Painting and learning to paint can be pretty isolating. Is it important to find a community when you're learning to paint? Oh, that is such a good question. Absolutely. I had a girl in my class I'd never seen before about a month and a half ago, and she could paint like a bandit. 
and I could see she was very frustrated and she was asking me lots of questions and I answered as best I could. And then I got home that night and I thought to myself, I know what she should do. So I emailed her and I said, you need to join a watercolor organization. And I gave her the names of two or three really good watercolor organizations in the area because joining those, she'll meet people she has something in common with. I paint to this day with three, four girls that were in the first class I ever took in my life. So that community is very important. And she wrote me back a nice email to say she joined and she was so happy. I told her to go volunteer, be around people that paint. I remember I had a significant other for 16 years. And when I first met him, he had a place up in the mountains about 17 miles from Boone. And um, I went up and after the first two months, I was so bored out of my mind and I was so unhappy. And even though I met people and I was playing golf and I was doing all the social things that a place like that asks you to do, I just had to go and be around artists. I took myself over to Cheap Joe's and signed up for a workshop, the only one at that time I could get into. And I took myself in. I sat in the very back row. I had the best time. It was just being around other artists having something to talk about and talk to, people that understood what I was saying, I really, really recommend that. You make wonderful, lasting friends that way. Thank you, Anne, for being with us today. You can find more about Anne Abcott, including her online classes called Virtual Studio, DVDs, book, and her live workshops at her website, anneabcott.com, or on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, Anne. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You can learn more about Anne Abgott at her website, anneabgott.com. And if you want to check out the vocab for this week, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode six to get the vocab notes and also to check out the bonus episode of Abgott explaining how she mixes her own opaque watercolors. While you're there, sign up for the newsletter to get each episode sent straight to your inbox. All right. Thanks for joining us this week. Happy painting.